Bigfoot Society would like to thank the following sponsors for helping make the podcast possible. The Singular Fortean Society has combined open and honest paranormal investigation and journalism since 2016. Visit the Society at Singular Fortean for all the latest weird news and more. Come with us and investigate the impossible. Lauren Smith is the hostess for Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio, which has been on air for over a decade and has completed over 300 shows. Lauren brings with her a unique viewpoint given that she is not only the daughter of one of the veteran female Bigfoot researchers in the South, but she has been conducting field research since she was a preteen some 20 years ago. Nightcaller's is a Bigfoot world favorite and along with interviewing researchers and witnesses often features interviews with guests from the documentary film and entertainment industry. Lauren also does a vidcast segment called Nightcallers, which features real encounters sent in by viewers. You can find all of this and more at nightcallersproductions.com. Welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Society Podcast. This week, I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. Daniel Perez from the Bigfoot Times. We have a great talk about many different things, of course, uh, but we do talk about Patterson Gimlin film. So this is one episode you definitely won't want to miss. Uh, also, uh, apologies to uh, those that were going to watch this live. I am doing a uh, live show now, uh, Friday nights, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, which usually goes uh, without a hitch. However, this time, uh, for some reason or another, so we did have to do a phone interview and for some reason, uh, things were not playing nicely and um, people could not hear Daniel. So apologize to those that did not, were not able to see this live. Uh, next week, uh, we'll be back to our normal way of doing things with the live show, not including a telephone call in the mix. So should be good to go there. Um, but you will really enjoy this interview with uh, Daniel Perez. A lot of really cool stuff in it. I enjoyed it. It's one of my top interviews. So sit back, relax, as I chat with Mr. Daniel Perez from the Bigfoot Times. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming back to the Bigfoot Society podcast. Um, and thanks for coming back to the Bigfoot Society podcast. I have Mr. Daniel Perez with me here from the Bigfoot Times. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing fine, anticipating this interview. Ah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, I've wanted to talk to you for a a real long time, uh, ever since I got into, you know, Bigfooting. Uh, I I knew that uh, you're a man of uh, much knowledge, and I'd love to talk to you. So, here we go. Um, I know that uh, we did just... uh, chat about this but i think the the question was very good uh the answer was very interesting so what in your uh mindset makes a good olympic runner i know you're into the olympics and running a ton i think i've been to nine olympic games and i would have been oh, wow. in tokyo in 2020 had it not canceled and uh so all the money that went for the ticket and the hotel and the tickets uh, the flight ticket uh actually got refunded to me and went into a kitchen remodel. So I guess it was good after all. (laughs) But to answer your question, I think perhaps more than anything, in terms of when you say good runner, you almost want to say that what gets you across the finish line first. And I would say determination from the athlete. And then secondly, uh, two things that come to mind. It seems that the Ethiopians and the Kenyans are more predisposed to running very well over long distances than any other group of people. 
and perhaps two things there it's genetic makeup and uh well going with that it's just the slim body build and it's just like you know the more weight that you're carrying over a distance uh adds up gotcha was uh running you were into something in uh during high school then or I was an avid high school runner, and for at least 10 years after that, a very, very good runner, but never world-class. But I did my fair share of running, and it's just like, looking back, I said, there's no way I could do that today gotcha. at age 58. Yeah, yeah, maybe well. at, age, <laughs> maybe yeah. at age 28, yes. Right. At 58, you, anybody starts to slow down. Yeah, it's those 30 years uh, they get you, yeah. Um, so besides uh, Olympics uh, running, Olympic running aficionado, uh, also known for being Bigfoot researcher and uh, author of the Bigfoot Times. Um, and so, you know, I, I know what the Bigfoot Times are. I just uh, became a subscriber. I have a few um, a few issues here, which I have really enjoyed reading. And thank you for sending those out. Can't wait for October. I know it's uh, uh, just in a few days, uh, but... Uh, how do you describe the Bigfoot Times to, to people that don't know about it? Well, like I said in the shirt that was released, uh, the only shirt that the Bigfoot Times ever released, it's, uh, and we were talking about this up in Bluff Creek, California. And I said, you know, Kip, my buddy Kip, Moral, and I said, we should have a shirt to promote the Bigfoot Times. And I said, well, and the shirt says something like this. It says, if you don't get the Bigfoot Times, well, you just don't get it. <laughs> That's and true. The, the Bigfoot Times has covered more original data on the PG film than any other newsletter, any other publication, any other website ever. And primarily because I've dug for a lot of the information, a lot of the information I've gone to primary resources and because I have the largest physical files in the world, I can access data that no one has ever seen. And so in the October okay. edition, which would be the anniversary of the PG film, mm. uh, we're going to cover a little bit more that has to do with the late Bob Titmus, who was the first on the film site in terms of a Bigfoot researcher who came down from Canada to investigate. And so some of that information will spill over into this uh, October edition because it's October 1st right now. So this month's edition, which will be released to the readership in probably less than a week. That's that's exciting news. I can't wait it, for it to, uh, to hit my mailbox. Um, going back to when you first started uh, coming up with the Bigfoot Times, what was your inspiration for, for launching that? Was there a specific thing or... Well, it was kind of the dot-com era. Mm, so it was, okay. it was uh, January of 1998 when the first issue came out. And the big thing back then was really uh, going from desktop computers to laptop computers. Or I don't even know if they called them laptops back then. But it was kind of, for those people who kind of followed that uh, stuff technology, computer technology, it was kind of a big thing. And so I was sitting in a McDonald's one day, one of my favorite watering holes, and I started writing on a napkin. And I said, well, geez, 
I was subscribing to some other newsletters, uh, Ray Crow's newsletter, the late Ray Crow, Don Keating's newsletter in Ohio, uh, Connie Cameron's newsletter in California. And I just felt that perhaps because they were the editors and the publishers of those newsletters, which were mailed out, uh, everything wasn't online then, and people were still getting physical mail. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have something to compete with those newsletters that was perhaps a little more carefully researched and a little tighter in quality control? And so I launched the Bigfoot Times, not knowing that the other newsletters would eventually all go extinct. So the Bigfoot Times is the last of the breed. There are no more physical newsletters that are published and sent out to a membership in the world, period. That's fascinating. Like, you're it. That's crazy. Yeah. And so whether people people may not admit it, but they people do like to read things that are actually in their hands that are non on a screen. I mean, you could stop reading it, set it down, uh, go in through the door and come back to it. And it's still there. It'll never corrupt. Yeah, no, I agree. There, there's something about hold, you know, the tangible, just holding it. I very much agree with that. Um, do you have a favorite issue or uh, interview that you've done over the years? Uh, I've done interviews with John Green, Jeff Meldrum, uh, Clef Barakman, uh, Rene DeHinden. Well, maybe not so much Rene DeHinden. Uh, maybe I did an interview with him before I started publishing the Bigfoot Times, but that was for a, a journal. Info journal, I think it was called, which is no longer being published. But I can't say I do, but I do tend to like the ones that focus on the PG film and perhaps some of the high points that most people don't necessarily consider. Or one of the qu- questions that most people will say, have to back off and say, like, oh, that really is a problem. And when we have a, an intelligent discussion of the PG film, what sums it up better than anything else, and I've said this in the past, well, if it really is just a man in a costume, why can't we duplicate it? Mm. I'll, I'll say that now. I'll say that 50 years down the road. Totally. If it really is a man in a costume, why can't we duplicate it? That's a really, that's a good point. And they, they try to duplicate it too, but it's like you just can't, you can't get, uh, I mean, you look at the film and you can see the the muscles uh, rippling on the thigh, and it's like you just can't duplicate it. You know, it's it's wild. So yeah, and so the second thing, as as you made those points, it's just like, so I would question you. I would say, you mean to tell me that two broke cowboys who came from Washington down to California <laughs> drummed up the mo- the money to do this? Yeah, it's it's wait wild. For answer. And and so yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that the skeptics and the doubters and the naysayers are just those are very uncomfortable questions. Mm. But they but they get they get to the core of the matter real quick. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, a thing that I I've 
I, I love hear, listening to interviews. And sometimes you, so you have multiple interviews with people from over the years, and I'm guessing it, it was for the Bigfoot Times. But so when you were getting these interviews, were you doing these on uh, what, what kind of uh, things were you using? Were you using like um, uh, tape recorders or, or what kind of things were? Well, yes, tape recorders. And I, I guess I'm kind of old school technology, mm. but I don't know if you recall a series on television. It was called uh, something about UFOs. Okay. Uh, Project Blue Book. Oh, yeah, sure. But at the time, they were, you see the two people from Project Blue Book going to interview people at their homes, and they had a tape recorder, I think. At least that's the way I remember it. And I thought that was like, mid 1970s thereabouts and i said and i was still a young teenager at the time and i thought geez wouldn't that be neat to interview people on a tape recorder Mm. and and it wasn't a new concept but it just kind of clicked in my head and i said well why don't we do interviewing people uh with a tape recorder to actually record what they said exactly what they said and so over the years i've interviewed people that were very close to the pg film including in the summer of 2017 bob gimlin interviewed him again never released the interview because i just said well these are some very key things that most people have probably not thought about so Mm -hmm. i'll interview him and uh, we'll see how it goes uh in 2003, 2004, actually in 2003, the late Al Hodgson from Willow Creek, California, told me about a fellow by the name of uh, Richard Henry. And I go, well, who's Richard Henry? And I really didn't know the name at the time. And he goes, oh, he was the guy that took Jim McLaren up to the film site in November of 1967, just a couple of weeks after the film was made. And I said, well, where does he live? And he says he lives in Willow Creek. And I said, do you have his number? And he did. And I got it and I phoned him and I got a wealth of information from him. So I did a, an audio taped interview with him at one time. And then I did a videotaped interview with him. And he went up with Jim McLaren and saw the tracks that were left behind from the subject in the movie film. And he essentially told me that I was on my hands and knees looking at those tracks and I could think of no way that they could have been faked. And that was the essence of what he told me. He's deceased now, but he was up there. And what is funny is that Jim McLaren has no recollection of Richard Henry being the person who took him up to the film site in November of 67. And, uh, Richard Henry's reply to me was that he says, how could he forget? We got two flat tires. I think they got a flat tire. I mean, think about it. You got a flat tire going up and you got a flat tire coming back. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that is very something that you don't think that you would forget. Wow. That's, that's intense. That is intense. And so, uh, as far as I know, I'm the only person to interview Richard Henry. And again, not just by writing notes down, but actually a live recorded interview of him. 
I can think of no other Bigfoot researcher who has done that, and you can't do it anymore because right. he's passed away exactly. a few years ago. Exactly. So I got to ask you, um, these just live on, I'm guessing, cassette tapes in your your archives? Or? Yes. Wow. Yes. I probably have more interviews because I inherited information from the Bay Area group. Yeah. And this was from the late uh, George Haas and Warren Thompson. Mm. Both of them are now deceased. Yeah. One of them was seen in a, in a series called In Search Of, and that was Warren Thompson. Okay. And also one of the other Bay Area group members, Archie Buckley. But never, never... Uh, the guy, the real founder, George Haas. But when George Haas passed away, he passed on his physical files to Warren Thompson. When Warren Thompson passed away, he passed on his physical files to me. So I have them all, which in a matter of one day, I went from being in no place to being in the first position in terms of physical files on Bigfoot. Wow. And many of much of the stuff in the files in terms of audio recordings have never seen daylight. That's in, that's intense, Daniel. Um, are there any plans in the future for these interviews to have some sort of way? I don't, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's got to be plans. I mean, if these interviews yeah, you've yeah. done have never seen people heard them, I mean, they've got yeah. to have life somehow. They really belong... Uh, to the public in the sense that mm. as because of social media and because of the internet and because of this greater interest in the subject than ever yeah. before is that people want to know about these things like, Oh, this really happened up in such and such a place in Oregon that I, they never knew about, but here's an eyewitness talking to someone about it on tape. Yeah. The, the history that those, would in, include yes. would be phenomenal and um yeah so hopefully you know we'll keep uh, eyes and ears out hopefully someday those will uh somehow uh become available for uh, everyone to listen to that would be amazing i'd be a super big fan of that um do you have any interviews that you still want to do or that are kind of on your bucket list well in the sense that a lot of the questions that I wish people would ask would be not so much the superficial uh, top of the soil ones, but the ones that dig deep, like for the people who are really mm. familiar with the subject matter to say like, well, what about this and what about that? And it's just like there's one case that a lot of people know about that people continue to talk about. And you could see it on the Bigfoot Forum's website. Okay. There's a whole section devoted to the Patterson-Gimlin film. Sure. And there's endless discussion about it. And they want to know the minutiae, all the details. And it's just like, I think that's wonderful. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a, a, a definitely a ravenous audience uh, about that film. I mean, uh, I remember that's the first thing that introduced me when I was a little uh, kid. That's the first thing I saw. I was like, wow, are you seeing this? And I remember my, you know... My dad was, he was like, yeah, I've seen that before. It's pretty cool. And I, but I was just like, you know, the first time you see it, you're like, what is going on here? This is nuts. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. it's just like, it, it's a very provocative film. And it, then it really Rene DeHinden, the late Rene DeHinden, uh, in an interview with an Arizona newspaper, said that from a, from a I guess, a, a legal 
scientific forensic point of view. And it, it was a good point at the time, but it turned out to be false. He said, you can't tie the subject in the movie film to the tracks in the ground, mm. which at the time, which was about 1977, that seemed like it was all said and done. But later, another investigator came along. I think by then, Renee was passed on. And this was around 2004, 2005. M.K. Davis from Mississippi pointed sure. out that in certain frames of the film, no, you cannot actually see the subject leaving the tracks in the ground. But what you see is what you would call awake, because behind the subject, in a certain frames, you could see these indentations in the ground exactly where she probably would have walked. Hmm. And so therefore, if you were to take it in perhaps the court of public opinion or perhaps even a, into a forensic setting, you could say like, wow, that's very evocative. And there you can tie, you can make it the connection that those tracks are associated with the subject in the film. And so what I'm talking about now is the minutiae is the tiny little things that make or break the whole thing wide open. Sure. So I think Greg Long in his book pointed out that, I guess that the trackway was left separately from when Bob Hieronymus walked and he was filmed. But the actual film disputes that notion. Hmm. And so basically it's just like Greg Long and Bob Hieronymus never got their story straight or never knew that what you could see in the film is it tells more than what they have to say in their book. Yeah. You, you definitely can't argue with the evidence in that film. Um, you do. A, so you've done a lot of interviewing definitely for the Bigfoot times. Have you been in uh, documentaries as well, or are there a few? Uh, okay. I've been in a few documentaries and it's not like i'm out jumping like the rest of the bigfoot crowd uh looking for those opportunities uh because i work full-time as a union licensed electrician oh sure so i don't necessarily have time like a lot of the other people to be running around and doing all these gigs i mean i know that the guy in Washington state, I can't think of his name. He's on one of those Bigfoot shows. Uh, I can't even think of the name. What is it? Bigfoot expedition or oh, expedition uh, probably Bigfoot? expedition Bigfoot. You're probably talking about, uh, yeah. Russell Accord. So one, of yeah. The, one of the, one of the people there is mm -hmm. retired Russell Accord, I yep. guess. So he, he has that full-time luxury of kind of doing what he wants. Sure. I do not. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I actually, uh, I think you were in uh, one of my buddy uh, Tate's uh, upcoming documentary. I think uh, I, uncovering fact, the truth of Sasquatch. I think you're you were interviewed did, for that, I right? Did, I did an interview for him, and that just came out. Or let's see, I want to say it. I think it's, it's end coming of the month. out yeah. on YouTube. Yep. Yeah, shortly. But yeah, I did. He did ask, and I've met him before. I think I've met him on two occasions in Bluff Creek, in that area up in Northern California. And so he sent a text and said, would you be willing to be part of this interview? And I said, sure. And uh, yeah, I, awesome. I try to make myself available when there is time. Totally, totally. Uh, so I've got a, a, so a question here. Um, so there's one of my favorite YouTube channels is uh, Sasquatch Archives. 
Um, yes. And they Mike have Bob some. Prescott. Yeah. Yeah. You know of it. Uh, there's some really good, amazing interviews and um, historical things on there. Um, walk us, walk us through. Uh, there was a, a situation uh, in 1995 at the Sasquatch Symposium in Harrison Hot Springs. And ever since I saw these videos, it's a presentation that you did. It was a very good presentation. Everyone needs to go to Sasquatch Archives and watch Daniel Perez in 1995. Almost do like a, a devil's advocate uh, presentation it, well, about the Patterson-Gimlin film. It's fascinating. Let me stop you. Okay. It, see, the thing is, it was a devil's advocate. <laughs> it, it wasn't like we were pretending. It, no, was, it was a was. devil's advocate. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I mean... My motivation for doing that, if you recall, in the history here in the United States, yep. OJ, OJ was on trial. Remember? Yeah, exactly. And so if you were watching the TV and it was hard not to see him on TV and the defense and the prosecution, you could kind of hear good points on both sides. And so when the organizer of the Sasquatch Symposium called me, he said, well, what would you like to talk about? And I told him about the situation with OJ. And I said, well, wouldn't it be nice to do a devil's advocate uh, <laughs> right. poking at right. the PG film? And he said, that would be wonderful. And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, it didn't sit well with Rene DeHinden, who was that's, in the audience. That's what I want to ask John, you. Is... John Green, well, <laughs> yeah. let's just put it this way. Two of the biggest names in all of Bigfooting oh, in recorded man. history were yeah. in the audience. And, and, and Rene was, did not like it. He didn't like it one bit. No. What was going through your mind during that when he, like, when it he ended up I, walking out? I didn't, I didn't think he would take it that personally sure, and sure. that bad. Yeah. But uh, as I continued to give the talk... I could see that he was just melting. Hmm. And when he walked out, I just said, well, I need to carry on. Yep. And he's just not understanding that this is just a devil's advocate presentation. Yeah. yeah. And, but I, I am, I had not seen that video in quite a while. And to my memory, Larry Lund was the person who recorded it. I believe you're right. And yep. so, uh, so when I saw it on the Sasquatch archives, I said, oh, wow, there's a younger me. And I really enjoyed it because I said, here are some key points that if you were to have that devil's advocate point of view that you could bring up and say like, ah, so you could see that the PG film is not what it's cracked up to be. It's a, it's a fascinating yeah. listen. People need to watch that uh, video series. Actually, everything. Yeah, on that in fact, yeah. I heard from, I heard I heard from several people on Facebook that they said, "Wow, I saw that. Uh, I saw your video on YouTube, and I said I couldn't. I he said uh, you really bring up some strong points, but those points again are from a devil's advocate point of view. Mm. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, I. I was happy to have done it, and I'm happy that they recorded it. And so yeah. there, there was a much much younger me there in front of the cameras. I mean, almost 30 years ago, really, if you think about it. Um, yeah, it's hard to believe yeah. how the time goes by. Exactly. And hopefully after that, eventually, you know, I hope you and Mr. DeHinden were able to to 
uh, <clears throat> smooth things we over, did. I guess. I don't know, but we did. You, okay, good. You finally came to a census about that. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> um, for newer Bigfoot researchers, what books do they need to, to memorize to have committed to memory? Like, what are your your classics that the newer guys should have on their shelves? Well, I think a good primer to get a feel for the worldwide subject is Ivan Sanderson's 1961 book, Abominable Snowman, Letting okay. Come to Life. Interesting. And even though it was published so long ago, it really gives you a worldwide scope that it's not just here in the Pacific Northwest that we're having Bigfoot reports, but people were reporting other things in other parts of the world. And then I would probably jump to 1978, John Green, Sasquatch the Apes Among Us, sure. because he gave the readership prior to the internet the the North American scale of the problem and how many reports there were. And that, that one right there was just, it blew a lot of people out of the water by the depth of the reports that we had. And then I think one year later in 79 or maybe right around that time in the late 1970s, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but it was called Rick Berry, Bigfoot okay. on the East Coast. Oh, I've never and heard of this one. His was a, it was a booklet. It wasn't really mm. that big of a book. Okay. But at the time, he cataloged over a thousand reports on the East Coast, which was vastly more than what John Green had in 1978. And just all the East Coast activity, and it was just—it was mind blowing wow. to say to understand that someone could compile all this data, and that there was there was as many reports on the East Coast as there was on the West Coast. Fascinating. Hmm. And let's see, what else would I? I think Chris Murphy's "Meet the Sasquatch" oh, that original sure, yeah. book that was published, uh, and it really gives you that coffee table introduction to many of the key items of discussion and evidence of Bigfoot here in North America visually. And so I think that's an excellent book. And that was published, ooh, I want to say 2004, 2005, mm -hmm. Meet the Sasquatch by Hancock House. So I would say those books are probably very good for a younger reader to get immersed in the subject. In 1974, there was a book for younger readers by the late Marion Place called yep. uh, Bigfoot. I guess it was On the Track of Bigfoot. I know a yeah, lot of people talk called. about that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A classic. And, and that was a very good introduction to the whole subject matter. And, uh, so I would say the books I just mentioned are probably some good books to jump into and uh, as opposed to just looking at the internet, sitting down oh, yeah. quietly and digesting those books to really get a feel for uh, of the whole thing. Thank you. That's a, that's a great list. If, if you, if our listeners find any of those books, like at yard sales or library sales, uh, you get a good price on them. You pick it up, no questions asked, because uh, those books are, uh, you were going to be paying some money for those on, on eBay for most of the ones listed. I mean, it's crazy how 
the Bigfoot. Uh, there's definitely an, a readership for good Bigfoot books, uh, and people are willing to pay for them uh, currently. It's pretty wild. Um, do you have a favorite uh, Bigfoot documentary that that you've watched over the years? Or uh, I don't well, know if that's I more guess, your thing. <laughs> I guess it's it's part entertainment, part pseudo documentary. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think the all time classic for me would be the legend of boggy Creek. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that and later. Yeah. Prior to the legend of boggy Creek, I knew nothing about the subject matter. Oh, and okay. even when I saw the legend of boggy Creek, I, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me. What they were talking about was Bigfoot. And, mm. but that's what got me interested. And that was about 1973. And I was about age 10. And I saw that movie oh, wow. at a walk-in theater, nice. and it just kind of it just kind of blew me away in the sense that, in the sense that I thought I was just going to see one of those monster horror movies, your typical monster like a Godzilla movie. Okay. I thought that that's what I thought I was walking into, and so I didn't know I was walking into a movie where they they wanted me to take this stuff seriously, but that was what they were conveying as the movie went through. And I, I, I said, I walked out of the theater after the movie was over and I said, geez, I, I just had so many questions. And one thing led to another and eventually I found my way over to the library. And then I think one of the first books I found was Marion Places on the track sure. of, of Bigfoot. And so I, I started reading it and I said, oh my goodness. And I started reading more and devouring the books and I go, wow, based on anecdotal reports, it sure seems like something is really happening here. And uh, I'd say a good 40 years later, you're still at it, which is wild. Uh, hard to believe. Yeah, hard that's believe. amazing. You think that, you know, that, <laughs> uh, that your interest, someone's interest would subside, but uh, I just kept after it. And, I was lucky in the sense that early on that two of the books I got a hold of had addresses to contact the author. And oh, one of wow. those was Rene de Hinden and oh, the other wow. was John Green's book. So basically you could think of it like this in the sense that uh, if it were, if it were basketball, that a young apprentice basketball player just happened to be coached by Kobe Bryant totally. and Michael Jordan. Totally. And it's just like, I mean, it it doesn't get any better than that. That's and just so it's crazy. Put, it just it just I got dialed in to the right people right out of the gate. Man, that's awesome. That is awesome. What are your thoughts on uh so try to explain this in a certain way. If you look from where I am and looking backwards, it's almost like there's been cycles of Bigfoot research. You've lived through, I would say, maybe a few generations of Bigfoot research. Um, are, are the current generation or the current cycle of researchers, are we on the right track or do we, do we need to get some well, stuff straight? What are you thinking? Uh, various thoughts. Okay. That the, the current crop of Bigfooters say that people that are young, early twenties, sure, uh, that type of that type of researcher or that age category, they're probably smarter than the rest of us that are older, 
they've had they've been maybe not so much taught but they've been exposed to a lot more hmm. uh, information and i think what makes up any deficits with the younger generation is the use of technology okay. when you could take a, a thermal so it doesn't it doesn't take any it doesn't take you to be a rocket scientist as a young as a younger newbie to realize wow i could get a thermal and go out in the woods into a hot spot for bigfoot and have really good chances of seeing something and perhaps 35 years ago we really didn't have that technology even though maybe the older generation of bigfooters may have been more well intended without the technology you're nothing and so there's so much new technology today especially thermals and, yeah. and uh, game cameras that are really good that could be cutting edge. So perhaps the, the technology that's in use today makes up for any deficits that their lack of understanding. I don't think the the new generation is more critical about the data than the older generation, because I think the older generation of Bigfooters, the ones that are still living, did a lot of reading on the subject as opposed to the younger generation who want that instant more like instant coffee or instant yeah, whatever right exactly you know they want it instantly rather than waiting and so that's that's what i see is the difference i i think you know the the, the current i'm just happy that there is a current generation oh sure that there's yeah. a lot of younger people trying to fill the void from the older generation that's all passed on. I mean, you look, for instance, the last of the the big four, Peter mm. Byrne, uh, Rene yeah. Behinden, John Green, and Grover Krantz. Exactly. Is the only the only one that's living is Peter Byrne. Yeah. But yeah. he's he's ninety plus. And so there's only so much more, you know, he's he's on the downhill slope. So exactly. it's not like it's not like he can offer too much more to the serious discussion of Bigfooting. Yeah, there's some some solid uh, younger guys that are um, they're coming up through the ranks. You know, you've got um, you, of course you got the Bluff Creek Project guys. You got people like Alex Petikoff, Eli Watson that are doing Beyond the Trail of Bigfoot, and and you've got people like uh, Connor Anderson with the uh, North American Bigfoot Center, just so many different, you know, um, researchers out there. And, and then you've got Sasquatch, uh, legend meets science too. That's, that's, uh, you know, coming down the pipeline and the stuff they're going to be bringing out. I just talked to Doug Highcheck and it's amazing. It's going to be some very, very cool stuff that comes out with that film. Um, so, you're uh, definitely an avid reader. Um, what are your thoughts on the phenomenon of, and I want you to speak freely, of course, uh, because I'm a podcaster, right? But <laughs> so I don't, you can say whatever you, what you want to say. But what are your thoughts on like, it seems like, of course, there's a generation where, you know, they're writing the Bigfoot books. And now there's a lot of podcasters that are talking about Bigfoot. And any guy can if they get the right tech, they get a microphone and they can hook up to the internet and they can start talking about uh, Bigfoot. I, Do you have thoughts about that phenomenon? Or 
what's nice about a podcast is that if you're interviewing someone, say a witness or a researcher, mm-hmm. is that they can't come back five years later or five months later and say, I never said that. And they said, well, True. here you are being True. recorded. Yeah. And so that's the beauty of a podcast. Yeah. And so it's all, it's always nice to hear viewpoints about various things. If you're talking about the PG film, most people take it out of context in the sure. sense that that's all they talk about is that Roger Patterson got a film in October 20th of 67. They never talk about what came before that up on Blue Creek Mountain in August August and September of 67, just a few months earlier, that on a ridge that's only maybe six miles from the PG film site, that tracks were seen of three different individuals, a 15-inch track, a 13-inch track, and an 11-inch track that Renee DeHinden went up to see and John Green went to see and I think Don Abbott got involved and uh, several people saw those tracks and they were of the opinion that that was real. So it's almost like saying, oh, look, there, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's tracks, there might be something else. And then here, Green and Hinden are up on Blue Creek Mountain, not too far away from the film site. And just a couple of months later in October, Roger and Bob go into the area hoping to see tracks for themselves and not only did they see the track maker, they got plaster castings of the tracks and a film of who was making the tracks. Where where do you think the original film is now? Don't know. Yeah. Uh, it could be anywhere. Uh, There's copies of it, it correct? There, there are copies of it. And Bill Munns, the researcher, has made sure. an accounting of what copies are seem to exist out there and to my knowledge peter byrne has a copy that has 954 frames which would indicate that he has the most complete version or the version with the most amount of frames so and that that's a copy of the original so it would indicate that the original has minimum of 954 frames Rather than 952. Not that two frames is going to make or break the case. It depends what's on the frames, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting interesting to know that the inventory is larger than what we suspect. Interesting. Or suspected early on. What are your thoughts on, um, and the next few questions, I'll be honest, Daniel, they might... um, well, we'll see. What What are your thoughts on where do you think the the film was developed for the Patterson Gilman film? I know you've done a lot well, of research into this. As probably somewhere in Yakima, yeah. Washington. And Roger did talk with a newspaper man that interviewed him, and I think this had to have been in '68. I've got it in my files. And Roger told the newspaper man when he asked about where the film was developed, he said, I got it developed at a private place. It would jeopardize the man's job wow. if it were told. That's wild. And that's almost an exact quote. Wow. And so here's the, here's the hot ticket to that, is that the development process for Kodachrome film at the time was a very uh, complex process in the sense that it wasn't it wasn't 
not just like making a photocopy of a picture on a on a photocopy machine. Sure. There were several steps involved. So whether it was in some some guy's garage or at a Kodak facility that uh, it was processed in the sense that it was a good movie in the sense that you could see stuff, but no one really knows for sure. And the person, if it was just one lone individual who had a, a copy, a, had all the soups necessary to do the processing in his own garage, that person has probably passed away because Bob Gimlin is what, almost 90? Yeah. And so that that person would probably be up there in age as well. So where it was processed, the most that we know is that as per Roger's own admission, it was processed at a private place and it, it would jeopardize the man's job if it were told. So if it were done at, say, Alpha Cine or another facility in Seattle, Washington, that they did it off the clock and they probably did it for hard, cold cash. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, nobody. You don't know. It's all it's all speculation. Do you have, uh, is, let's say if someone wants to really get into the Patterson-Gimlin film, are there books that you recommend? Um, I know you mentioned uh, Bill Munn's book as as a, a possible one. I, I would, a few of them? I, or? Would, I would read Bill Munn's book, uh, When Patty Met Roger, sure. I believe. It's definitely a good book in the sense that he lays out some technical information in the sense that he says, according to his analysis, that Roger's finger on the trigger of the knob to start and stop the film, that there were several starts and stops. And as far as he was concerned, it was indicative of something that was spontaneous and not planned and orchestrated. And so that's actually a good sign because it shows up in the films, the starts and stops, because uh-huh. when the film on a mechanical movie camera, when it starts, it has to get up to speed. And in order to get up to speed, it goes from slow to faster. And you could see that on the film in certain spots. And according to Bill, I think it was about five times that Roger took his finger off the trigger. And when you actually look at the movie, and it, it's very clear that it was taken under extraordinary circumstances in the sense that the cameraman was moving around and that if it were a spontaneous event, that's something that you would probably expect, that his finger would come on and off the trigger multiple times. Hmm. Hmm. That, I've never thought of—that's a really interesting thing to think about, Yeah. Well, that's that's a that's a key point that Bill Munns brought out okay. in his book. Okay. Talking directly, so thinking of people that are still going to the film site today, um, what do you, do you have any thoughts about maybe what are things that need to be done next with the film site, or any thoughts regarding that? Um, I think what. What is still possible or hopeful is trying to understand whether that film was shot with a 25 millimeter Hmm. lens or a 20 millimeter lens or possibly a 17 millimeter lens. According to Renee and Renee DeHinden used to be pretty 
accurate with his information. When I wrote the booklet Bigfoot at Bluff Creek, um, I put down 25 millimeter lens and that information was directly from Renee. But I never bothered to ask him, how did he know that information? Only that he knew it. And so now that he's gone, it's just like you all, hindsight is always 2020. Exactly. So using a, a photogrammetry formula, you can determine with the lens and the distance from the subject, how tall the subject is. So, but in order to get that height, you would have to know, not maybe, but actually, what lens was on that camera? Was it a 25 millimeter? Was it uh, a 20 millimeter? It seems to me like it was probably a 25 millimeter lens because of the great panoramic view from edge to edge, mm, from, sure. from from left to right. You pick up a lot. The subject on the movie film is no bigger than a sprocket on the film. and But you have all this panoramic panoramic view that shows so much of the film site that it seems that that was probably the 25 millimeter lens but that is not that piece of information is not set in stone yet gotcha gotcha so it's an open question I know that on your interview with Cliff and Bobo you had mentioned that there you're working on a booklet regarding um, the PG film. Is there any any updates on the the progress of that? Or I wish I could go faster, but it, it's kind <laughs> of stalled out for a little bit. But it's sure. it's mostly going to be a pictorial book. Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Where there's a, there's going to be a lot of never before published prints. That's awesome. That the late George Haas took of the PG film site when he was there with John Green and Jim McLaren on June 23rd of 68, when they went back to the movie site. And uh, the late George Haas was with them and shot slides of the whole area, which is like one of the most brilliant documentary things that anyone could ever do with regard to the film. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that for sure. Um, the we're, we're getting into the part where there's a, there's a few questions that I, I ask all of my uh, uh, people I interview, and I'm, I'm curious to, to know your answers on these. Um, so someone asks you, what is Bigfoot? How, are you, how do you explain what Bigfoot is in your words? Well, in general, it just seems like an undiscovered primate sure. that exists here in North America. What it's all about I can't really tell you because I always emphasize to people that we are studying Bigfoot reports, not Bigfoot. Mm. And there, there's a very big distinction there. And I'll repeat myself. We're studying Bigfoot reports, not Bigfoot. So no one really knows the natural ecology habitat of a Bigfoot because no one is really studying a Bigfoot hands on. So there's most of the things we don't know. We don't know if they bury their dead, whether there's fossilized information here in North America that's been overlooked or never found, or all of these things. It's all, it's all good guesswork. Exactly. Uh, what do you consider the top evidence for Bigfoot? 
Oh, obviously the PG. Thing. Obviously, I I literally have second best written next to that question because I was like, he's gonna say PG film, but <laughs> what is your second yeah, because, best then? Oh, <laughs> uh, I would say possibly the Bossberg tracks. Okay. Because multiple cool. people were involved, and the fact that Renee DeHinden was there and that he saw these tracks, over a thousand of them, and that his typewritten notes were eventually published in one of Chris Murphy's books. Sure. And it, it shows that the track line that he was looking at was sure seemed to be coming from a living animal as opposed to someone just laying down tracks. Mm. And what's interesting, again, what's interesting about the Bossberg tracks is that not so much from Ivan Marks and Rene DeHinden, but what came from the newspaper articles that were being published at the time, that the tracks went into Lake Roosevelt. And this is December of 69. So first of all, the weather there, because there's snow on the ground, is either freezing or close to freezing. So if someone is pulling a stunt, they're going to a lot of trouble to do so. But here's what the tracks did, is that there was a boat ramp there or something of that nature that went down straight into Lake Roosevelt at something like a, a 40 degree angle or a pretty steep angle. And according to observers who reported it to the newspaper is that the tracks at one point came together and it looked like the thing skied down into the water on its feet. Wow. So if, if this were a fake, who does that? That's wild. Who does that? Who does that for, for the fact that maybe someone will never see these tracks and they just went in the water and got <laughs> hypothermia? It's just, it's just, yeah, exactly. it's, just it's, it's easier to believe that a real living animal made those tracks as opposed to uh, them being faked. I love that. That's very cool. Uh, the next section I have, and uh, this will be our last section. So, I've got this thing where I've got a few things. I'm gonna I'm gonna say the say a phrase or a word, and then what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I'm just curious to know what your reaction. These are things you might not have been uh, brought up in interviews with you before, but uh, this is not just a Bigfoot podcast. It's a cryptozoology podcast, so I talk about other things as well. But uh, here we go, uh, Mothman. Not too impressed. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Dogman. Probably Bigfoot. Could, yeah. Yeah. Could be. I agree with that. Although he's, he's a vicious dude, but I'd, I'd, I'd stick with Bigfoot, uh, not Dogman. He, but that's down Kentucky. Uh, the show Finding Bigfoot. Uh, I wish I had more time to watch. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they'd come back too. We'll see. Hopefully someday. Um, Robert W. Morgan. Uh, he did some really good early work and had a sighting uh, early on that was discussed in a couple of books. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he saw some tracks there in, uh, I guess, Lake Merwin. I want to say in Washington State in '74 that I guess he discovered and. Uh, I would say quite impressive. 
yeah, love uh, In Search of Bigfoot is is uh, such a cool 70s time capsule of a Bigfoot documentary. It's, uh, it's fun stuff. Yeah, that, that so fun. was a good one. Um, Ape Canyon. Uh, if you're referring to uh, the miners, incident, uh, yeah. I would say, I can't think of his name right now, but the investing Mark Marcel. Mark Marcel, it's a fun That's guy to talk really, to. Really, really really good research on it and it seems to confirm my suspicion that all that was alleged was real perfect yeah yeah i agree with you i agree with you uh bigfoot nests of the pnw uh i'm open to it and i understand they want to do edna i don't know if it was ever done or not but uh i guess in that sense the proof is in the pudding yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, the film Seth Breedlove is coming out with in about a month about that. I'd be curious to see what they what they were able to film. Um, uh, thoughts on UFOs? Oh, for real? Oh, for real? Okay, cool. I mean, uh, it's, it's the sense that, you know, what happened in San Diego, what was picked up by, I guess, the United States Navy, the films and stuff and tracking them and what was released to the public. It's just like, I don't think there's any craft that anyone, any country has ever developed that moves like that. Hmm. So, and it's definitely not uh, an astronomical object. It's definitely something that is controlled. And it's just like, I can't say it's proof of extraterrestrial intelligence, but it's proof enough to have an open inquiring mind to say like, what's, what's in our airspace that seems to, that we can't seem to do anything about. Awesome. Uh, last, last but not least, uh, Van Meter Visitor. Have you ever heard of it? Who? It, it's an Iowa cryptid. It's my, it's, it's my, I'm from Iowa. So it's, it's a winged cryptid. Uh, don't worry about it. It's fine. But you should check it out. Um, 1903 pterodactyl terrorized a town in Iowa, but uh, you made it through oh. the gauntlet. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, Very good. Daniel, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, first, before uh, before we end things out, are there any other, any things that, uh, that you want to make sure the audience knows about, about your current uh, work uh, that we weren't able to, to talk about? Yeah, I, I want to make sure that everything, um, that nothing is left unsaid. They could the audience can continue to see my work on a monthly basis. Just oh, yeah. go to Bigfoot, bigfoottimes.net and get a membership to the newsletter. Very affordable. It is the best $20 that you will spend in the year. And I'm not even kidding. I've, I've only read two, two issues so far and I'm super impressed. I mean, you've got, I won't say I'll, an over letters to the editor. You, you're, you're talking about stuff that, I'm not seeing talked about on social media or any other, like there is Bigfoot stuff that is only in these newsletters. If you like Bigfoot and you're not getting this, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're not getting the whole story. That's, that's the easy way to put it. So there you go. You said it better than I could. There you go. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much, uh, for coming on. Are, Are there, um, ways that people can keep up to date with what you're doing like uh when your booklet comes out of eventually things of that nature what's the best way well when it when it's 
all said and done, uh, the booklet. Yeah. I, I think it's probably going to be called Bigfoot at Bluff Creek, a pictorial. Nice. But uh, I will definitely announce it on social media that it is available. And uh, I think uh, everyone is going to want to get a copy because, again, there's going to be photos in there that have never seen daylight, period. Oh, sure. And the best way to follow you on social media is, I'm guessing, is probably your Facebook account, right? That's the only, the only way. social okay. media account I have. So anything that's else, Daniel Perez is I... fake. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the only <laughs> socialness I have on the okay. internet. Good to good to know. And the uh, the website for Bigfoot Times is bigfoottimes.net. You can go there and you can pay for uh, your subscription using I paid with PayPal. Uh, there's some, uh, I believe, another way to do that, but. Um, uh, PayPal is probably the easiest, I would I would guess. But your information is BigfootTimes.net, so check that out uh, right away after you listen to this interview. But uh, thanks so much, Daniel, for coming on tonight and uh, for, for chatting, uh, and it's been a fun time. Very good. Well, thank you for having me. Can a big thanks to Daniel Perez from the Bigfoot Times for coming on the podcast today and again please just go out and subscribe to the Bigfoot Times like right now it's 20 bucks that's like two times going to Starbucks guys and you will not regret actually getting a newsletter in your mailbox you can hold Bigfoot info you're not going to get anywhere else I'm not even kidding two issues in and I've been reading stuff that's been blowing my mind and that's not been talked about on Bigfoot social media, go and subscribe to the Bigfoot Times. Um, but thanks again to to Daniel Perez uh, for coming on the Bigfoot Society podcast. Also, and if you haven't heard the Bigfoot and Beyond episode with Daniel Perez, which I'm sure you have, but if you haven't, go watch that. Uh, go listen to that next. It's a solid interview. Uh, big fan of Clifford Bobo. You guys are awesome. We'll see you back next week. Uh, again, remember that uh, Friday nights, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. It's our live show. Uh, next week, we should be back to normal with no technical difficulties. I'll be talking to Mr. Steve Culls, the Squatch Detective. Uh, so you'll definitely not want to miss that. And I'll uh, see you on next Friday, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell icon so that you don't miss when we go live or upload anything new. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for taking your time out of your busy day and spending some time with us. Uh, go ahead and uh, subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Leave a review on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and uh, your preferred podcast platform. And... Um, if you have any stories, you can give us an email at bigfootsociety@gmail.com. And again, check out the articles we have and more preferred book lists at bigfootsocietypodcast.com. You can always go to Instagram at Bigfoot Society, and we have a TikTok now. It gets pretty crazy there. Bigfoot, Bigfoot dot Society at Bigfoot dot Society. Thanks again for taking your time listening to the Bigfoot Society podcast. We'll see you next week. Uh, next Saturday will be a new episode. And also, if you want to take part 
in the live taping of the episode and put your questions in there for the guest, just remember, subscribe to the Bigfoot Society YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss out on any of those episodes. Thanks again, all, and we'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Bigfoot Society. Any content provided by our guests are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone. Thank you.